And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of the Truth Radio Show. Outoflimitsradio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, our featured guest is a successful comedian and a best-selling author. And before we begin and ask our deep introspective questions, I just want to bring to your attention that I myself am a former stand-up comedian. And I was pretty damn awful. They used to call me the vaccine comic, which means that I would go on stage and I would do so bad that the audience would have lowered expectations so the other comedians that would normally do awful, they would get more laughs by default. So hence, I was in pretty much great demand. Uh, and I did comedy back in 2001 to about 2005, right after I got done with my internship on Howard Stern. And you just go throughout New York City and you perform at these clubs in front of two or three people at 3 o'clock in the morning waiting for 50 other comedians to go ahead of you. And it sounds pretty awful, but I don't know. It's, it's pretty damn exciting. <laughs> When you kill and when you do really great, it's it's a rush. And I always believe that some of the most profound truth-tellers are stand-up comedians. I mean, look up at George Carlin. Look at Bill Hicks. These are two individuals that were so far ahead of their time. And they, you know, they, they spoke so much truth. And when you're able to make people laugh, you're healing them. You're bringing all this powerful, beautiful energy out there. So our featured guest... Again, successful comedian, but he's also speaking truth, not just to power, but truth to these mobs of people that seem to be losing their mind. So, very excited. Let us begin tonight's show. It is a great honor to welcome today our featured guest, New York Times best-selling author, thriving comedian, soon-to-be new father, host of the top-ranking talk show, The Ruben Report, and the undisputed king of taking down that uber-fascist Liana Wynn. Please welcome to the show, Mr. <laughs> Dave Rubin. Ryan, that is an extraordinarily impressive and gracious intro, but I have to say, out of all of the nice things that you said there, the Liana Wen one, I mean, I, I want to put that in my official <laughs> bio or something. I have just, she's actually, technically, I call her Liana Wench, oh, but if you yeah. want to go by her given name, that's okay. Oh, no, I've always, I've always shared your uh, memes and perspectives with her, but before we begin, I just want to say that. I am almost positive that we've met a few times because I used to do stand-up comedian back. I used to do stand-up comedy in 2001 to 2004 in New York City, and I knew David Webb, Paul Mercurio, Joe Franklin. I also did PR for Comic Strip Live in New York Underground Comedy Festival, and I want to say that I am so happy for your success, and um, you know, I think it's great that you've reached these big levels, so congratulations to you, Dave. Wow, I appreciate it. Do you know for a fact if we've met or not? You know, obviously, I it's like my whole life has changed so much in all the years. And, you know, when you're doing stand-up, you meet a gajillion people. But, you know, I actually started Joe Franklin's Comedy Club, which we started 
in the back of that little restaurant. Eventually, it took over the whole restaurant. Then I took yep. my sort of A-list comics. We moved over to uh, the TGI Fridays in Times Square. We were running two six-night-a-week comedy clubs, uh, just a bunch of comics spreading the money. We did some of that New York City Underground Comedy Club stuff and all that. And I have great fond memories of all of that. Unfortunately, most of the guys disappeared yeah, I, uh, and didn't make it, but, you know, it is what it is. It's a tough thing. It's really a tough thing. So... But I, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that we haven't just because of all the things of the comedy festivals. But Dave, you're author of a great cool. new book. Yeah, a great new book called "Don't Burn This Country: Surviving and Thriving in a Woke Dystopia." I was wondering if you can please can you please describe what wokeism is and discuss why it's thriving, and do you see it as a collective spiritual problem? Well, you actually hit the key word there, collective. That that really is the key word when it comes to to wokeism. Wokeism is the idea that we should judge people based on their immutable characteristics, thus putting them in a collective rather than focusing on what actually is important, which of course are your individual thoughts, your individual actions. Uh, then you throw this into sort of an algorithmically charged atmosphere like we live in with all the big tech craziness. And you've got, you know, in essence, hordes of people that now think that their skin color or their sexuality or their gender is the most important thing about them rather than the things that make them different from people or make them unique or individual. And in essence, that concept is what has destroyed so much of the America that had guys like us doing stand-up comedy back in 2003, uh, which was a very good America. And it feels like a, an America that's very long gone, uh, one that I'm trying to bring back a little bit with this book. Good. I appreciate it. And I agree with you that I wish America was like what it once was, but this push to collectivism, it's, it's pretty crazy. You know, when I read your first book, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason, you, this is, uh, you discussed going through your dark night of the soul when you realized that the belief system you once had wasn't serving you. Was it absolutely imperative for you to transition into a new belief system, or do you think you could have completely walked away into a period of prolonged and permanent uncertainty about your related your relation to the world. Oh man, great question, dude. Thank you. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. You. Um, you know, I think all of us, in some ways, sometimes you you actively find your belief system or you're taught a belief system from a very young age, and you can have that. And I would say some people are taught a belief system, and they can just go throughout life with that belief system, or maybe they have moments when they question that belief system, but that remains the basic building block that they work around. Some people aren't brought up with much of a belief system or are brought up with a bad belief system and have to come to a better one later. Sometimes you are brought up with one, you completely lose it for a while and you come back. Um, you know, I think in terms of politics, you know, what happened to me was I grew up in a, in a very sort of functional, secular New York household. I grew, I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in Long Island. I lived in Manhattan most of my life really solidly middle class. And that was a time when sort of old school liberalism, JFK style liberalism worked. And then as things progressed into say 2015, 2016, uh, that's when the wokeism stuff really began. That's when progressives, the AOC thing, the Bernie thing, it really demolished that old school liberalism. And it turned it into this collective big government monster. I started questioning it and I, I think for several years, wasn't fully sure where I fell politically or anything else, uh, but I was always trying to reach out and find, you know, people with better ideas or new ideas or people that I respected and liked and was willing 
to talk to that would be willing to talk to me. And I would say now, although I certainly don't think that politics is the totality of my belief system, it actually for sure is not. Um, I would say I have no problem saying that I'm something like a modern conservative. I think conservatism is sort of a wide tent right now. I'm on the more libertarian side of that, but that also includes, say, religious conservatives. And, you, you know, you've got the disaffected liberals and libertarians, religious conservatives. You've got the neocons, the Trumpers and never Trumpers. I think that group, although it's very, you know, amorphous in right now, it needs to kind of coalesce just to stop the woke thing. And then we can deal with our problems after that. I agree with you. I agree. This whatever this wokeism thing is, it's out there, and I appreciate you sharing that. I'll tell you this next part. Uh, it's probably a longer question, but I want to read to you a quote by Gustave Le Bon. It says, "The masses have never thirsted for truth. Whoever can supply them with the illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victims." So, Dave, in my life, I've had two teachers I've learned a lot from are Larkin Rose and Dr. Ron Paul. And Larkin says that the problem isn't what political ideology sits on the throne but the throne itself. And then at 84 years old, every day Dr. Ron Paul preaches the virtues of liberty and the beauty of individual responsibility. Do you think that people who align themselves with any type of groupthink risk putting themselves on the path of intellectual enslavement as groups have a tendency to be hijacked? Or do you think that the only true refuge from intellectual enslavement is for a person to abandon all social and political groupthink ideologies and only embrace the beliefs which uniquely serve that individual and whose beliefs do not infringe upon another person? This is another great question, man. Thank you. You know, I would say I go, I go into this a little bit in the book, or actually more than, more than a little bit. You know, the thing is, I believe in individual rights first, and much like uh, Ron Paul, you know, the foundational documents that we have in the United States, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, these, in my opinion, are the best man-made documents related to freeing people and organizing a society, which is why the United States, even as banged up as we are right now, is the greatest society to ever exist in human history, a place where we wanted all of the throwaways of other societies to come here and make a better life. And almost, almost without exception, they have and continue to even now in the face of the craziness that we're talking about. Um, I think to some degree, if you start a society with an individual and then an individual, say, finds a spouse and then an individual has a family and that family moves to a community and they find somewhat like minded people and maybe they get involved in sports or maybe they get involved at a, a, a church or a synagogue and they build out truly bottom up, then I think you can have a sense of community that will fight the collective. What we're really fighting is the, is the idea that takes away from the individual. So I think in a certain utopian sense, uh, what, what you're laying out there can sort of work that none of us would really have to have an ideology or a set of people around us that really thought of things the same way, something like that. I think that that can sort of work more either as an intellectual exercise or sort of in a black hole but I think in, in real politic, I think there's a version of it that makes sense. And again, it's really just what we were founded on here. Uh, and speaking of what we're founded on, I love that you've praised Florida. I live in North Carolina right now. I definitely see it changing. And I've always loved Florida. I love what direction it's going in. And one thing that I'm going to be working on and try to talk to more people about is should people migrate to states based on their political association or affiliation? Because I'm trying to weigh the differences that, okay, do you move to a state because of people around you? 
for that particular reason and temporary in time share the same perspectives that you do? Is that something that's worth bet- betting the house on? Or should you move to a state that has good agriculture? Or should you move to a state that has surrounding family? When you look at that and you look at all the people migrating to Florida, what do you foresee? Do you think that um, it is where should people move to? I mean, where do you think are the best places for freedom ultimately? Yeah, well, first off, I hope you'll join us at my tour stop in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, it's with Andrew Clavin from the Daily Wire. I'm actually blanking on what date it is, but it's, in, it's sometime in April. So you'll you love can, to be uh, there. Check it out. DaveRubin.com slash events. There's a little promo for you. I've still got, I still got some of the old radio skills. Um, the answer to your question, I can answer it very directly. Look, the, the federalist system that we're based on, the idea that the states are supposed to do most of the stuff, in essence, and then we would have a very sort of not weak, but not very hyper effective federal government that would basically make sure the states aren't aren't warring with each other, that we have some interstate commerce, that there isn't a constant conflict between states. That's really all the federal government is supposed to do. I mean, it's supposed to guard our federal borders and a few other things, but in essence, the, the state is supposed to matter more. Well, the silver lining to COVID is in many ways, that's exactly what's happening. I live in Florida now after growing up my most of my adult life till 2013 in New York, and then for about eight years, nine years in California. And I can tell you that I live without question in the freest state in the union right now, led by the guy who I think is the best politician in America, Ron DeSantis, not because I worship politicians, but because this guy is there to free the people. He's not trying to govern as a king. He's trying to govern as someone saying, hey, live your life. We're, we're going to get out of your way. We have, you know, we have no income tax here which is also fantastic. We have a booming economy here, despite all the COVID craziness. It's the reverse of California. So I would say what's happening right now, this sort of split of the states, it's actually okay. I know it feels sort of dangerous and scary, but at the end of the day, I don't want anything from from the people of California. Not to say there aren't good people in California. Of course, there are good individuals there. But the government is so deeply corrupt. The people keep voting the wrong way. They, they send their economy into the tank despite constantly raising taxes or actually because they constantly raise taxes. They've ruined their educational system. Wokeness has infected everything. And Florida is flourishing. So the red states, in essence, will continue to flourish. The blue states will continue to crumble. And anyone listening to this should take that into account. In my opinion, it makes a heck of a lot more sense to live in North Carolina than it does in New Jersey right now. I agree. I, agree. I loved your interview with Edgar Toll and how you described the experience of watching yourself from behind yourself kill a stand-up comedy. I've actually had that experience mm-hmm. as well. I was at New York Comedy Club one night and I was doing that and it was one of the rare times where I actually was, was connecting and I felt that and other people have felt that as well. And I'm curious... Have you, um, how did that moment change your life and how can other people attain an experience similar to yours? Yeah, so first I'll tell you, New York Comedy Club, which was at least when we were doing stand up way back when and when I started in 98, I mean, that was sort of the biggest dump yep. of comedy. But, you know, you, you sort of you sort of had, you had to start there and it was a nightmare. And I used to, you know, I'd work and I'd literally clean toilets so I could get five minutes of stage time after five hour show and it was an absolute nightmare. But there was a guy who, another comic who, I can't, Eric something, I can't even remember his name. He was not a particularly good comic, but you'll appreciate this. He, one night he said to me, it was just like a long night, you know, 50 bad comics go on. Everybody's bombing. It just sucks. And he turns to me and he goes, Dave, we're at New York Comedy Club, the only club in America where the word comedy is in quotes. 
And I just thought that was just like the most perfect, <laughs> the most perfect thing. But but I'm so glad you asked that about Eckhart because that moment that I was describing was at Gotham Comedy Club, actually. Uh, not the Gotham that you know of now on 23rd, but you may remember from early on. It was on, I think, 16th Street between yep. 5th and 6th. Yep. It was the smaller club there. And the stage was really high there. It was a nice size room. And I just always would crush in that room. They had a Tuesday night show. I would always crush. And I remember one night, I was just, I was in the zone. I was, you know, game one, 1992 NBA finals, Michael Jordan just throwing up the threes. And I, I truly remember, just as I described it to Eckhart, I remember it was as if I was standing behind myself and I was sort of like, who's doing this right now? Like, it didn't feel like it was me. It was just happening. It was just happening. And, you know, any, any comic or any basketball player or anyone that's doing really what they're supposed to be doing, you get those moments. They call it the zone. When you're in the zone, you are so doing what you're supposed to be doing, your training and your passion and your love and, and all the BS that comes with all of that. Like, for whatever reason, on that given night, it, it just locks in and you're doing, you're doing it as you're supposed to. So you get those very, very rare moments and then you always chase them after that. Um, but I think it taught me something more, more than it taught me about stand-up. It just taught me something about the, the value of the journey. That you know you're not you could you could crush the third time you ever do stand up, but it won't be that because what that is is a a churning of time and passion and work to to result in something that you actually can't even control or make happen. And I, it's amazing that you're able to do that, and I hope that we don't lose our our sense of laughter because it seems like with the wokeism, it maybe not in the U.S. but worldwide that they're they're trying to clamp down on it, and laughter is mentally so soothing for you it's physically so soothing for you oh yeah oh yeah yeah as far as the final question goes Dave I've read through your books uh well actually your first book and I watch your show and I watch your commentary I always get this sense that you are uh, seem to be like a deeply spiritual person and I also get the sense that well you you always improve upon your communication I I find that when you talked about uh, subjects a year ago to now like you you were always refining you're very sharp and the question I have is what is your definition of excellence compared to what the world views as excellence? And how do you know for certain when you're performing at the superior level that you set yourself out to reach? Man, all-star questions here, Ryan. Something, something you. came out of the New York City. Something came out of the New York City club scene <laughs> in the early 2000s, after all. I really had my wonders. Um, Thank you. You know, you know I'll tell you, uh, I toured with Jordan Peterson, as you know, for a year and a half in 2018 into 2019. And we did about 120 shows, about 20 countries. And Jordan, for anyone listening that doesn't know, I mean, he was a Canadian psychologist, clinical psychologist and professor who ended up becoming the, the most important public intellectual that I think we've had in America, possibly in the last something like four decades, uh, really, in essence, telling people to take responsibility for their lives and fix themselves before they fix the world. And I was on tour with this guy and I watched, not only did he share his message with other people, but he was incorporating that concept in his own life. And, he, and then that caused me to start incorporating it into my life. And that doesn't mean that he is perfect or ever try, uh, purported to be perfect, nor do I pretend that I'm uh, perfect or anything close to that. But if you, if you pay attention to what you're doing. If you say, oh, there's something roughly out there. So for example, you, you'll appreciate this. I mean, 
when I was in high school, I wanted to host the Tonight Show. That's I, I thought I could replace Johnny Carson one day. That that was sort of what I wanted. And uh, we just moved to Florida, and I was going through some old boxes. I found my high school uh, yearbook, and in it, I flipped them through it, and everyone in there, all my friends were writing, "You're going to replace Carson on the Tonight Show, or you're going to replace Leno. He had just taken over, something like that." And although I did not end up replacing Johnny Carson or Jay Leno on The Tonight Show, nor would I ever want to. I mean, I'm not kidding you. If they offered me The Tonight Show now, uh, who is it, Fallon hosting it, I guess, I would never want that. It's beyond. I would never want anything so mainstream, no matter how much money they offered me. But I did end up doing something approximately like what I wanted to do, something that I deeply loved, something that then allowed me to create several businesses along the way, something that got me to travel the world, something that got me to meet some of my heroes. And so excellence, I think, is finding, is finding something and going towards it. And it doesn't mean that that's the thing that you will ultimately get. But if you do that, and if you work hard, and if you do it with a degree of integrity or something like that, I think you will get, I think you will end up somewhere orbiting where you wanted to get. And in some ways, maybe it will even be better than what the intended uh, goal was. Mr. Dave Rubin, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, Dave is author of a soon-to-be best-selling book called Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving in Our Woke Dystopia. You can learn more about Dave by going to two different websites, daverubin.com, and you can also go to rubinreport.com. highly recommend signing up. You get to be part of this great community. Dave, it was a great honor. I have so much respect for you, and I'm really happy that you're thriving and being a voice of freedom in our world today. Brian, I enjoyed this, and uh, I hope to see you in Raleigh. Let me know if you can make it, and I'll uh, be happy to say hi to you after the show. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our unbelievable guest, and special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Constance Dallas, and our social producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Out of Limits of Inner Truth, Please go to our website at outoflimitsradio.com. And until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take care and thank you so much for listening. Love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 